from graduation, Larry began to have what happens sometimes to seminary students. He began to have those, those kind of, well, why am I here? What am I really doing? What have I really accomplished? I'm praying and things aren't happening. I'm working hard and things just don't seem to be turning out. It just, you, you get that way. You kind of start to get tired. You start to get worn out and you start to feel like you're fighting the same battles. It's kind of like some of you ladies have pulled the same weeds out of your garden 150 times and that same weed comes back. And if you, you know what I'm talking about. Well, that's the way it feels sometimes in your spiritual life, like you're just going in circles, fighting the same battles over and over. And that's where Larry was. He was fighting the same battles over and over again. And so he went to one of his professors, and it was his advisor there at uh, Fort Worth at the seminary, went in and talked to him and says, Professor, I just don't understand. I mean, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm faithful at church. I mean, I've been preaching, doing lots of stuff. I mean, I'm excited about what God's got for me, but I just feel empty inside and like I'm fighting the same battles over and over and over again. And so this seminary professor looks at this young theologue and he says, well, Larry, let me ask you a question. You know anything about the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians? And he says, well, yeah, I think I do. In our third year Greek, and Larry was in third year Greek at that time. Now, now some of us who, who know about Greek, we know it's a language, and we know that it was an original language. <laughs> Larry could, could read it. He could read it you know, as fast as you read English. He had actually gone into third year Greek so that he could go and study the original Greek and read it in the original Greek, which is far harder to read than you might imagine. Well, anyway, he said, oh, yeah, I know all about that. And he said, well, let's, let's go to that part about the armor, Larry. Let's look at that. And this professor's taking him you know, by the hand, basically. So let's look at that. And Larry, he's, he's, he reads it out loud to this professor. And he says, now, Larry, my question to you is, do you do that? And Larry said, look, I, I'm a third-year Greek student. I can give you this. I understand everything about this passage. I know what the, the gospel shoes mean. I know what the breastplate means. I know what the helmet's all about. What do you mean, do I do it? Of course I do it. He said, Larry, let me ask you a question. Do you do it? There's a command in that scripture there. It says, stand, therefore, having done all you can to stand, stand, Put on the armor of God, having put on the whole armor of God. And he was trying to get Larry to understand, what you're doing wrong, Larry, is you're not putting on that armor every day. You're not standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free. You're not putting on that breastplate of righteousness, that helmet of salvation. He says, what? He's from Texas, so he said it just like that. What? You mean I'm supposed to do it? Like act? Like, Lord, today I'm putting on your helmet of salvation. He said, now you're getting it, Larry. You mean today I'm supposed to go to the Lord and say, today, Lord, I'm going to wear your breastplate of righteousness, not mine. Now you're getting it, Larry. Today I'm putting on the, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. You mean I'm supposed to do it? Now you're getting it, Larry. And Larry went on to do great things for the Lord, having all of a sudden discovered that when you put on the armor, you're prepared for battle. You see, the devil doesn't really care if you know about the armor of God. The devil doesn't really care if you understand everything about the Greek in the 6th chapter of the book of Ephesians. But if you do it and obey the 6th chapter of Ephesians, guess what? The devil's going to flee because the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Something so simple! And yet, it was a key. Today, in our message, we're going to look at something very similar to that because there's a man in the third chapter of the book of John, turn there with me if you would, who's going to be given a very simple thing, a very simple word from the Lord. And we're going to find out that it was very similar to this because it's something so simple and it's just kind of a, just, just back up a minute and ask yourself the question, am I doing it? Is this something that I have done? And so our text today is John chapter number 3. It's going to be very familiar to some of you, but I want you to try to hear it with new ears, if you will. You know, they sometimes say we need to get some new eyes on this. This would be a good time for new ears. 
because we're going to introduce an encounter in the life of our Savior and a man by the name of Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, we're going to just read the first three verses for right now. John chapter 3 and verse number 1. Zerbeth will have it up on the screen for us, but if you have it in front of you, you read along as I read aloud. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, that is to Jesus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is that famous place in the old King James where it said, Ye must be born again. And that's what really the idea is that he's trying to get to Nicodemus, and he's talking to this man. Now, now let me set the stage for you a little bit. First of all, people read this and they say, ooh, look at that, he came by night. Why did he come by night? He must have been afraid. Well, you can put that on him if you want to, but the fact is if he wanted to talk to Jesus by himself, he's going to have to wait until all the crowds were gone. And everywhere Jesus went, Jesus had crowds following him. At least he had 12 disciples with him all the time. If he wanted to speak to Jesus one-on-one and really speak to him man-to-man, he's going to have to wait until sometime in the night. And so he came to Jesus by night. And yes, he did have the possibility that uh, he could lose a position because it says there, as we saw in verse number one, he was a ruler of the Jews. That tells us that Nicodemus was somebody who was on the Jewish Sanhedrin. There was a group of 70 men. They were the, the kind of the, well, it wasn't always 70, but it was the, the ruling council. It was a lot of people who would wish to be on that council, to be one of the rulers of the Jews. Well, Nicodemus was one of those guys. He was a member of that Sanhedrin. And if he had been caught with Jesus, it was a possibility he might lose his seat. So it might have been because of that, and it also might have been because he was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Pharisee club, it says there. And Pharisees, if you talk about religious folks, you haven't talked about religious folks until you've talked about the Pharisees. And so if he was found to be going to Jesus and asking Jesus, requesting anything from the Lord, he might have lost friends. He might have lost reputation. So yes, it might have been that reason that he waited till night. But mostly, it was because he wanted to get to Jesus because he was genuinely seeking. He genuinely was sincere. He was an open soul seeking for God. And so he begins the conversation. It's interesting. It's the Pharisee that begins the conversation there in verse 2. And he starts it just the way he would almost any other religious greeting with compliments and platitudes. Because that was the way you spoke in those days. You didn't actually just go for the, for the jugular. You didn't just go for the, the, the center of, you know how some people core a watermelon? You know, you get the best part. Oh, that's the heart of the well, watermelon. You go for that. You leave the rest for the, your grandkids. You don't ever do that, do you? Well, I know. Well, anyway, <clears throat> Jesus had a way of going right for it. Well, the Pharisees didn't do that. Religious folks a lot of times will dance around these. They'll have these philosophical religious dances where they want to come in and they say, well, I know that you've got a THD, brother, and I know that you've been to the seminary, and I know, and they'll go all the way around the block before they come to the point where they say, but I've got to tell you that I disagree, you know, because <laughs> that's where they're really headed. They're, t- they're going to go to that place. Well, he does all that in verse number two, as you see there, when he says, we know you've come from God, you, you, you know, God is with you. But Jesus was having none of that. He wasn't there for a religious conversation. For one thing, he got woke up in the middle of the night, at least as far as we can tell. He might have gotten woke up. But he cut away the platitude, okay? He trimmed away the compliment, and he went right for the heart of what Nicodemus wanted. 
<laughs> I love this. Sometimes I have to do this where somebody wants to come to me, they find out I'm a preacher, and they've got all these flowery words to say. And there's just a time to say, look, please put away your philosophical sword. What we're about to have is not that kind of conversation. And Jesus was basically telling Nicodemus, put away your butter knife, son. You're not here to butter me up. It's not going to be that kind of an encounter. And so Jesus laid it out plain and straight, just as it says there in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus heard those words probably for the first time from the lips of Jesus this day, born again. And notice he says, you must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't say to him, turn over a new leaf. Oh, go get a self-help book, Nicodemus, and just, just improve your thought life. Well, if you'll get some positive mental attitude, you get out there and you can dig it out, buddy. You can do it. Pull up your, 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 your pants and get out there and get busy with it. You know, a lot of people just, they think that's how to do it. Nicodemus, follow every letter of the law. That's not what Jesus said. No, he said, born again. And by that, what he's telling this religious ruler is that all the works that you could do, that is all the self-improvement, all the nitpicky keeping of every letter of the law is never going to be enough. And remember, think who Jesus is addressing. He's not re re addressing some booze-stinking bum in the gutter. He's talking to a ruler, a religious ruler of a religious people, and a Pharisee, which means he was even above that because he was keeping the law when other people didn't, and he was a seeker after truth. He's, he's talking to that man, not some, some intellectual now who has chosen, well, I don't think we need God anymore because after all, science has proven that God isn't real. Oh, really? With that person, I'd like to have a philosophical conversation because I can prove him wrong in about five minutes. But Jesus wasn't even addressing that man. Jesus wasn't addressing that, that, that person down in the, in, in the jailhouse who's there for some vicious crime or that corrupt government official. No, Jesus is speaking to a good man. Jesus is speaking to an honest man, an honorable man, a religious man. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again unless one, including you, want to be a partaker of the kingdom of God, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. See, that's one of the problems we have with 21st century Western culture. And I'm talking about Americans, British, uh, Germans, Spaniards, whatever. You put anybody in there. If you're kind of from the Western tradition right now, you hear it all the time. Oh, society needs a change. Our society is broken. Society needs reform. We can hear the outcry. If you watch five minutes of cable news, you'll know that somebody's got the answer. And it's society that needs to change. Society needs a radical turn. Left, right, up, down, center, behind, whatever. Society's broken. But hey, now me, I'm okay. I mean, after all, I'm kind of a nice guy. I get along with my neighbors. I'm not so bad. And the vast majority of people inhabiting Western culture today, they'll acknowledge the brokenness of our society. They'll acknowledge that things are not fair. They'll acknowledge that things need to change. They'll even look sometimes, see the imperfections in others, and what they will actually genuinely call evil, which is hard to get some people today to call anything evil, but it's sometimes, once in a while, they'll actually see something they can say, wow, now that was evil when it rears its ugly head. And still, that person who can see evil, recognize perfections in others, will look at themselves and gamble that their good will outweigh their bad, and somehow I'll be okay. You know, I've never done this before, but I want to do a little thought experiment with you. Let's say that I could build a robot, okay? A moral robot. A robot that could be morally right or wrong, okay? Let's, I'm going to do this. So remember, it's a thought experiment. It's pretend, okay? But let's say I could. 
And I've got this robot right here. And what I want to do with this robot is I want to drain into that robot the very best traits that you have. Okay? Think about your very best trait. I'm going to take that very best trait and I'm going to put it into this robot. Okay? Let's say I take Alethea's kindness and I put it in this robot. And I take James's compassion and I put it into this robot and I take, take uh, Vincent's excitement. Yay. Right into this robot. And whatever the greatest, you know, the greatest thing. Let's say I take Darren's zeal. And all of the things that you're thinking of right now, this is my best trait. And we put it into that robot. And he's full now. And now he's going to go stand. We're going to take that robot with all of your best traits and stand him before God. And he's going to stand there in judgment before God. Because the Bible says, as pointed unto men once to after this, the judgment. He's going to stand before God. Is Mr. Robot going to stand before God and be found equal to the righteousness of Jesus, or is he still going to fall short? I'm talking about he's got your best traits. He's got your best traits. He's got Kaylee's honesty, the whole thing. Mr. Robot's in trouble. Because you see, when you stand in judgment, you're standing based upon the righteousness that Jesus has, which is perfection. And I don't care how good your best trait is, it's still tarnished by pride. It's still tarnished by sin. It's still not quite measuring up to perfect. And so even your best trait doesn't measure up to perfect. Where are they, where's the rest of it going to fall? See, that's the problem with 21st century Western culture, with America, with Oklahoma, is we have a problem just admitting that we got a problem. And so let's just, let's just think about that. Mr. Robot's in trouble. Why? Because all have sinned. That is, none of us are perfect, even our best trait. All of us are guilty. All of us have been poisoned by sin's bite. Now, now Nicodemus had never heard the term born again before, and many of us, maybe some, some of you even this morning, never, never heard that, born again. And here's Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jew, one of the most religious men you could ever meet, and he's looking at Jesus, and, and he hears born again, and his, his response is, what? Kind of like my friend Larry. And so Jesus takes verses 4 all the way down to 13, basically helping Nicodemus understand just how much he doesn't know. And Nicodemus, I won't go through all of it, but Nicodemus keeps saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. In, in verse number uh, 9, Nicodemus answered, how can these things be? In other words, I, I'm just not getting this. And so in verse 14, Jesus takes him back to this is how you do it. How can one be born again? How do you do that? And so Jesus says something that for some of us is going to be such a weird thing. But Jesus says in verse 14, go down there with me, verse 14 and, and 15. This is John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Nicodemus, you remember that snake that God had Moses put on the tall pole? You know, that wooden post that Moses raised up, and it was in the center of the, of, of the camp there, and everybody could look to it? Well, of course, Nicodemus recognized that. Nicodemus would have known all about that. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He might have actually been able to quote that section of Scripture verbatim to the Lord. Well, for those of us who are not specialists in the Old Testament, let's go find it and see what it says. It's in the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book of the Bible. Numbers, chapter number 21. If you were looking there in your cross-reference in chapter 3 of John, you might have seen that the cross-reference tells you to go to Numbers 21. That's a neat thing about a lot of Bibles. They have that cross there. But in Numbers chapter number 21, since many of us need a refresher with this, let's begin in verse number 4. 
And again, Zerbeth will have it up here on the screen for us, but if you have it in your Bible there, take a look at, 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 at what the, what's said, verses 4, 5, and 6. And they set out from Mount Hor. This is when the people of Israel were in the wilderness wandering or headed to the promised land still. The Lord, uh, in verse 4, they came Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, that word food there is probably better translated bread. Uh, it's talking about something else besides just food, but it's, it's mostly it means bread in the original language. So notice, first of all, I want you to see, Nicodemus is thinking about this, but for us, let's notice, why were these grumblers? Why were they grumbling about? Well, it was a hot place. They were in a desert. They were in a wilderness. They had been walking for a long time, and now they've come to this place where they could go down the highway and get to somewhere where they're going in about 14 miles but no, we're not going to let you come through our land. You've got to go around 50 miles. Wouldn't you like that if you're on foot? Hey, take a 45-minute detour. For us, big deal. Now, take a 14-day detour, walking an extra 45 miles on foot. They might have gotten grumbly about that. Well, the enemy nations were threatening them. If they didn't take this extra trip, they might attack them. And water was scarce. So here as they wander, it's along the way. As they're walking this distance, they became impatient. They were much discouraged is another way that that's uh, translated. They just got depressed. I wonder, you ever get much discouraged? You feel like you've been pulling up those same weeds over and over again? You feel like you're just a long way and I'm just kind of marking time? I've changed this diaper 27 times this week. I've got to change it again. Well, some of you ladies who had four, five, or six kids right in a row and you had diapers that are part of your family for 12 years, I think, Wow. Thank God for mothers. Amen? But they became impatient. They became much discouraged. And I wonder, do I qualify for that? I, here, God Himself is leading them through the, the, the wilderness. God Himself is in command, and God is visibly present. This was when God was leading them by the, the fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And whenever it stopped, it would be in the middle of the camp. They could look down to the middle of the camp and see there's, there's God's manifest presence in the camp. Wouldn't that be cool? You know, I don't, I don't know how hard a time we'd have filling churches on Sunday mornings if there was a visible fire by night and, and pillar of cloud by day. That might be something. Well, they had that. And evidently, it wasn't enough. It's not good enough when you become discouraged along the way. But not only did they get impatient, much discouraged, they murmured against God and against Moses, against God and against God's man. And I wonder sometimes, do we qualify? Do we ever qualify murmuring against God? Because here they were accusing God of limitation. They said, Lord, if you were really God, we'd have all the water we need, we'd have all the food we'd want, and we'd already be there. Are we there yet? They were murmuring against God because they thought he had limitations, but then they attacked Moses for not being a better planner. You know, sometimes the people in leadership, well, why didn't you think of this? I thought of this. Well, I never thought of that. Those kind of things. They, they attacked Moses, and then they attacked God of actually plotting to kill him. Look in verse 5 there. It says, 
You've brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. If God had wanted to kill those people, He could have made them all drop dead that fast. He could have let them be taken by the death angel, but He didn't. God Himself had rescued them from Egyptian slavery. He had gone down and released them from bondage from the Egyptians. And not only that, He had redeemed for Himself a people. But that's not good enough when you're disgusted and disturbed and discouraged because of the way. But then, this is the most amazing thing. They grumbled about their blessings. I mean, here they are. Lord, thanks for this food, I guess. Amen. Have you ever heard anybody pray like that? No, because we're too, too, we're too cultured and erudite to speak like that in public, but a lot of us think that, especially when we're driving by somebody else's $300,000 home and we're going home to a trailer house. But hey, if God provided that for you, that's God's gift to you. Are you thanking God for that trailer house? But they grumbled about their blessings. And I wonder, do we ever qualify? Here they were, they were grumbling. They were saying, hey, we're, we don't like this, this food, which as I mentioned is better translated bread. In other words, here, we've got this stuff called manna. We've got to go out and pick it up every day, and we can grind it into this. We can bake it into bread. They had manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But they wanted a hot pan of cornbread. Can't we have beans once in a while? That's kind of what they were grumbling about. They didn't like their provision. But yet God Himself was providing them with meat and manna. They also were complaining because they didn't have a permanent source of water. You know, if you've got a permanent source of water, you've got a well, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Hey, God, we don't need you anymore. We've got our water right here. Thank you. We'll see you next week. But they couldn't do that. They had to trust God every day, every moment for their water. They didn't like that. We want to be able to do this without you. And then I love the, the last little bit of verse 5 there. We loathe this miserable food. Now, if you've ever read anything about manna, by the way, you know what manna means, the word manna? It means, what is it? Seriously, that's what it means. It's directly translated, what is it? Because it was, it was little flakes that they could pick up off the ground and it would form itself into, I mean, it wouldn't form itself. You could gather it up and you could make it, you could grind it into bread, you could cook it in a pot, all kinds of things you could do. But they really couldn't tell what it was because it was like bread, but it wasn't bread. It tasted like bread with honey, but it really wasn't honey. It, wasn't, it really wasn't bread. It was something else. It was, what is it? And we got people all over the world today chasing what is it, wondering when they get their what is it, they don't know what it was they were chasing. And when they get it, they still don't know what is it. Well, they were complaining about their provision. God, we don't like this miserable food anymore. Can't we have beans and cornbread just one dinner? I'm sure they did have some beans, and I'm just funning. But the fact is, and the problem was, that it wasn't good enough. God Himself providing meat and manna. God Himself providing water. God Himself providing provision and protection. But it wasn't good enough because of they were discouraged because of the way. And I wonder sometimes this morning, and maybe you could answer this for yourself, are we more of a person who is humbly grateful or are we more grumbly hateful? I have a, I have a feeling a lot of people in America would qualify as, as grumbly hateful. Jesus, in the mind of Nicodemus, just trying to connect that, um, that grumbly hateful group to everybody. That's what he was trying to say, that... Everybody around you, in one way or another, is grumbling against God and God's authority. I don't want to follow God. I don't want to have to listen to God's rules. I want to live my own life. Okay, that's grumbling against God. Or in, how about this? God puts somebody in authority over you, and you don't like them. 
Now, you're welcome to like who you, don't, who you like and not like who you don't like, but if God puts them in authority over you, you have a responsibility to them and to God to obey them. And here they were griping against God's order. They didn't like Moses anymore. I wonder how many of us would qualify for that when we've grumbled against our parents or against our boss. Because after all, the people at the post office are just two-legged. Anyway, <clears throat> that's what we do. They were grumbling against God's provision. And God was, by, Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to see that all, everyone, you and me, Jesus was telling Nicodemus they have the poison of sin and that we have the poison of sin in us. And that sin is going to take us down the broad road to destruction, just like the Israelites there in Numbers 21. Nicodemus, that good man, all of us, good and bad alike, that, that group of people there had shaken their national fist in the face of Almighty God, just as we have. That group of people there individually had shaken their individual fist in the face of a holy God. And so what did God do about it? Now this is the part where it sounds like, wow, why would God do this? Look at verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, listen, as a Baptist preacher, I would love to let God off the hook and tell you right here that, well, God allowed the snakes. And God used the snakes, but no, that's not what it says. You know, I mean, the, the idea that says fiery, it could have meant that it was fiery uh, color, like the red. It could have meant that the, the poison was, uh, was, was like burning fire going through your veins. Uh, whatever, they were horrible snakes. And the Scripture says that God sent them. Why? Why would God do that? Because that was the due reward. That was the just wages of their sin. The sin of rebellion, the sin of thanklessness, the sin of lawlessness, that was their just wages. And by the way, the bite was always deadly. How tragic. I mean, how horrible is that? It actually sounds like it's out of character for our God, for a God of love. Isn't he a God of love? Yes, he's a God of love. But he's also a God of justice and judgment, and he is a holy God who cannot abide and will not abide sin. And he also says that the wages of sin is death. So what happened? Well, the people realized we're in a fix. And so they cried out for mercy. Look at verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. It's one of the weirdest things in the Old Testament. I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you, this is for, even for me, as I've studied it many times, God had Moses make a snake, something in the shape of a snake, symbol of evil, symbol of suffering, the, their pain at that point, and put it up on this tall pole and put it right there in the middle of the camp. A wooden post, right there, way up high where everybody could see it. There was a representation of God's righteous judgment hung up on that piece of a tree there. And anybody who was snake bit... Anybody who was, had the venom of the snake burning through their veins, they could look at that banner pole where that snake was. They could look and live. Well, for Nicodemus, all that flashed through his mind all at once. And, and I, I mean, I wonder about these things sometimes, and maybe it's just me, but I have to try to put myself in that condition, in that place. If I were in that grumbling camp, and, and, and all of a sudden, I'm just walking along, and I'm griping about dinner being manna again. I wish my wife could fix something besides manna. That's all we got, honey. Okay. And I'm walking along, and all of a sudden, pow, one of those snakes gets me right there on the thigh. 
or not the, the calf, right there on the calf. And I cry out in agony and in fright. And some friend, I'm talking about a neighbor I barely even know, two blocks down and up a ways. I don't even know this person. But they come along hearing me screaming, and I, there's this big red whelp swelling mark on the back of my calf. And they gasp and say, oh, friend, listen, listen. You need to get on your feet. Help, let, me get you, let me help you. You need to look and, and, and live. That's what we got to do. Get you on your feet. Now, can you imagine a person snake bit and knowing it, and they don't want to look down there and live? Can you imagine that? It would be hard to imagine, but I'm telling you today, in our culture, there are people that are that hard-headed and that hard-hearted that they would not even accept it if it was that simple. Because I'm here to tell you that the gospel really is that simple. I know human nature enough. Would somebody refuse to look and live? Absolutely. Because they're hard-hearted. They say, I, if I go to that and I say that I believe God can save me and I'm going to believe that He is who He says He is, I'm going to have to accept the fact that I am who He says I am. A sinner needing a Savior. And I'd rather not ever say that, so I'll just soon... I'm snake bit. I know I'm going to die. I've lived without God. I'll die without God. And there are a lot of hard-hearted people in 21st century America right there but some of them are just hard-headed. I mean, it's surely like, like my brother Naaman down here. I've got to run a race and get a ribbon. I've got to get a trophy. I've got to have all that, don't I? Well, no. All you have to do is accept the fact that God said, if you'll just look, you can live. If you'll just accept the Savior that God has provided, you can be saved. But we don't. Somehow, in 21st century America, people are so hardwired to rebel. You say, well, is it just 21st century America? No, it's mankind all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because it's the sin that's within us. It's not that they could not look and live. It was that they would not look and live. They chose rather to die. I mean, they could die in sight of salvation if they just turned their head and look in faith. Nicodemus, all that flashed through his mind as he was hearing this from the, from the Savior. He knew all that. He understood all that. He was able probably even to teach a lot of that, the history at least. But just like my friend Larry, who knew all the Greek, it wasn't enough, Nicodemus. It's not enough that you know about it. The question is, and you must answer this question, have you done it? Jesus, perhaps for the first time, and maybe for you this morning, is connecting that sin poison that's coursing through the, the veins of the entire human race, connecting it to the burning venom, destroying those rebels back in the day. And here in John chapter 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you're, you're snake bit, Nicodemus. Your problem is not that you're not looking hard enough. Your problem is not that you're not religious enough. Your problem is that you're snake bit. And it should be obvious to all of us, all of us who had those good traits we'd like to put into that, that robot guy. It's obvious to all of us that all of us have sinned, that all of us are guilty, that all of us fall short. And I'm telling you, friend, you are poisoned with sin. But now, having explained to Nicodemus all the bad news, Jesus goes on to tell him the good news. That's what it means here. And go back to John chapter 3 very quickly. I'm almost done. John chapter 3. When Nicodemus was there and Jesus said in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. God was about to raise up another pole, another part of a tree. And on that tree, on that old rugged cross, God was about to affix the symbol of God's righteous judgment a suffering Savior. Because the wages of sin is death, a dying Savior. See, God provided a substitute for you and for me. Because I'm guilty. 
My sin demands righteous judgment, and my righteous judgment will be to die. The wages of sin is death. So God provided a dying Savior so that somebody died in my place. And what the message was, even here to Nicodemus in verse 15, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. All who in faith will look to Him can have their sins paid for, washed away forever. All who in faith look to Him can gain His righteousness so that when we stand before God, we don't have our righteousness and our robes, but it's His righteousness and His robes. And we can be given everlasting life. And I'm here to tell you, you can do that today. And really, that's what this table's all about. It's about the suffering Savior. He's the one who died. And because He's the one who not only died, but He rose again, He's the one who can offer us that free gift to look and live. And, and listen, He's not just offering a relief from the poison where sin won't bother you anymore. He's not just offering a reprieve from punishment so that you don't have to go and, and, and die or go to hell. He's not just re offering a renewal in this life so you can have a better life here. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, how do we do that? Simple. Very simple. Jesus said it. In, in, in John chapter 5, just a couple chapters after this, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into condemnation. He's passed out of death into life. You see, because the Son of Man was lifted up, that is, he was nailed to a tree, because the Son of Man had his body broken, as this bread is going to symbolize, because the Son of Man had his blood shed, as this juice is going to symbolize here in just a moment, because he really died, and I'm saying he was really buried, Scripture tells us, history tells us, and that He really did rise again from the dead as history and Scripture reveal. Because He did all of that, we can look away from our sin in repentance to the Savior. We can look away from our snake-bit sin, life, reality, and as Scripture instructs, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You can look and live. You know, as Easter comes around each year, people begin to ask that question, why did Jesus have to die anyway? People who, who maybe haven't been to church, they don't have, grew up in a religious tradition, why did Jesus have to die? Well, the fact is, Jesus did not have to die. He chose to die because of His love for you. And that's what John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He chose to die in your place so that you and I don't have to die in our sin and guilt. So the question that I end up with today is would you today, would you look and live? Let's pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father.